0: Welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, February 4th, 2024. I am your reader, Sharon Faljudo, and we look at the front page of today's gazette. Under the banner, Cold Cases, Daughter Yearns for Answers After Slaying. Fred Cost was stabbed October 15th, 1959, while working at downtown loan firm by Trish Mahaffey of the Gazette. This is the second installment in an occasional series about cold cases Investigations in Cedar Rapids and Lynn County. Diane Martin doesn't remember much of that October day in 1959 because she was only seven and in bed with a headache, fever, and swelling of the neck and face. A bad case of the mumps. I remember my dad kissing me on the forehead and saying, Punkin, I hope you're going to feel better today, she told the Gazette during a phone interview. He always called me Punkin. If Dad called me Diane, I knew I was in trouble. Her father, Frederick Leonard Cost, known as Fred, age 47, Went to work October 15, 1959, at the Family Finance Corporation in downtown Cedar Rapids. Her mother, Betty, went to the dentist for a tooth extraction. She was at home with her grandmother, Louise Cost, Fred's mother, who lived with the family. After leaving the dentist office, her mom had to pick up her prescription and decided to walk over to Fred's office at 312 2nd Avenue Southeast, which is now a parking garage. When Betty got near the office, she saw police cars with flashing lights. Officers stopped her and wouldn't let her go inside. She didn't know what was going on. "'I really don't remember much,' said Martin, now 71 and living in Alabama. "'I was so sick, I'm not sure it registered at the time. "'My grandma fell apart when she heard about my dad. "'I remember my mom was upset, but she was a strong woman. "'She had to be for my grandma.' "'Martin never thought that kiss on her forehead would be the last from her father.' and she never thought his slaying would turn into an unsolved cold case 64 years later. I wanted for whoever did this to be found, Martin, becoming emotional, said. I wanted him to burn in hell. I wanted him to suffer, and sometimes I still do. Fred Cost was discovered by two loan applicants, Thomas McMurrin and Donald McSpadden, about 11.35 a.m. that day, on his back, surrounded in blood. Cedar Rapids police investigator Matt Denlinger said in reviewing the original cold case file, The two men went downstairs to the Devar Diner, which was below the office, and found a police officer, Donald Hollister, who contacted detectives George Matthias and Roy Walker. They arrived about 11.55 a.m. at the scene with an identification officer. Denlinger, a member of the department's cold case unit, said there was evidence of a struggle in one of the cubicles where Cost was likely consulting with a client. The office made small loans and kept cash on hand. The table had been pushed back against the wall with a chair behind it, Denlinger said. There was a manila folder that Fred was looking at with a customer's name on it. He was clearly a person of interest. The detective's notes indicated there was probably an argument over an application for a loan that Fred had turned down. Cost was stabbed in the chest six times with a heavy object, Denlinger said. One of those stab wounds punctured his heart, according to the coroner. The detectives also found partial bloody handprints on a drawer behind the counter, and it was determined that $258 was missing from the cash drawer. The person of interest file showed he had taken out a loan for $151.58 on September 25, 1959, and there were what appeared to be blood droplets on the account sheet. Denlinger said he is in awe of how thorough the detectives were and how quickly they collected evidence and created a victimology, a deep background report on cost. When investigating a case, Denlinger said detectives want to look at the victim's background to see if the crime happened because of circumstances surrounding the victim. But there was nothing in Cost's life or background that would lead detectives to an obvious killer. Cost grew up in Little Falls, New Jersey, and served in the U.S. Army from 1943 to 1946, which included World War II. Before serving, he sold Pontiac cars for a short time, then worked for National Life Insurance, and then for a loan company in Atlanta, according to the case file. No problems in the military, no disgruntled ex-girlfriends, investigators determine He started working for the Family Finance Corporation in 1949, then was called back to the military, this time for a stint in the U.S. Air Force in 1950. He then returned to family finance in Charlotte, North Carolina, as a manager. Cost had been robbed in the past, Denlinder noted. When he transferred to Baltimore, Maryland, a man in 1953 robbed that office at gunpoint. The sus- suspect was captured within minutes and identified by Cost. He was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Cost was transferred to manage the Cedar Rapids office in 1958 and had been here only about 14 months before the fatal assault, Denlinger said. A former secretary who worked at the office the month before the slaying spoke highly of Cost, but when the killing happened in October, he didn't have a secretary in the office. Cost would occasionally stop by a tavern, usually Sammy's on First Street, for a beer and then go home, Denlinger said. There were no reports that he was a gambler or had any work issues. His wife would stop by the office in the afternoons to help. The two men who found his body, McSpadden and McMurrin, agreed to take a polygraph or lie detector test, which seemed to be a typical police tool back then to rule out suspects, but rarely used today, Denlinger said. McSpadden and McMurray passed and weren't considered suspects. A timeline was quickly established, Denlinger said. At 11.15 a.m., a Mrs. Charles Kinky reported she talked to Cost on the phone and his body was found at 11.35 a.m., which left about a 20-minute window for the fatal attack. The customer, whose file was found on the floor near Cost's body, was called by police within an hour of the homicide. He lived in the Cedar Hills neighborhood. The Cedar Hills man, as Denlinger dubs him, denied being at the finance office, but when officers showed up at his house, he admitted to stopping by to inquire about a loan. He said this happened about 11 a.m., and he was told to bring back his wife to cosign for the loan, which the detectives doubted was true. He also denied knowing anything about a homicide there. The detectives couldn't verify his timeline and obtained a search warrant for his home and vehicle. In the house, they found a handkerchief with what appeared to be bloodstains. In the car, a bone-handled knife with bloodstains was recovered. T.C. McDermott, the identification officer, flew with the items for testing to the FBI lab outside Washington, D.C. within 24 hours of the homicide. The testing was completed within five hours, which is unheard of today, Denlinger said. It usually takes weeks or months with backlogs at the state crime lab. However, the test showed the blood on the knife wasn't human. It was some sort of rodent. No link was made between the potential suspect and the evidence. The Cedar Hills man took a polygraph, but the results must have been questionable. Denglinger found notes from a follow-up discussion with the University of Iowa professor about administering truth serum that had apparently been used by other agencies at one time, but the professor said it was unreliable and it wasn't done. The possible suspect was released due to lack of evidence. Denglinger said there were many notes on canvases downtown in follow-up interviews, but no real leads. Detectives even had checked out any possible suspects who were traveling with the Clyde Brothers Circus out of Oklahoma that had been performing on Mays Island the day before, October 14, 1959. An interview with another former office secretary, Pat Thompson, gave the detectives another possibility for a murder weapon. She recalled that there had been a different letter opener than the one found in the office, and it was bigger and made of copper or dark in color. Denlinger Denlinger said it was unclear in the notes if investigators thought it might be the heavy object used to stab cost or if that letter opener had just been replaced by a new one. The larger letter opener was never found. Martin, a retired social worker, said her mother was so upset in the days following her dad's death that they left for Chicago and stayed with a relative. She recalls spending a beautiful day on the lake with a cousin before going to Atlanta, where her mother's parents lived. That's where they buried her father. Her mom didn't want to go back to Cedar Rapids. It was too painful. They lived in Atlanta for a few years. She remembered the military funeral for her dad, who was a staff sergeant during his service. She recalled hearing taps, and the flag was presented to her mother, which Martin received after her mother died. Denlinger said that in 2007, there was a big push in the department to look at Cedar Rapids cold cases. Specimen and hair samples from COST have been collected for future testing, and now retired investigator Doug Larison sent those in for further testing, but nothing significant was discovered. Larison followed up on the Cedar Hills man and learned he was living out west. In 2013, retired Captain Jeff Melgren, who worked as a volunteer for the cold case unit, traveled to his home for an interview. The man was 83 years old at the time. His story had changed some from 1959. He said he was given truth serum, which didn't happen, according to the case file. Melgren was hoping for a confession, but didn't get one. Denlinger said it was difficult to decipher from the case notes if this man was lying or maybe, based on his age, having memory problems. Last year, the unit took another look at this case and realized investigators didn't have a good DNA profile from the victim to use for comparison and further forensic testing. Denglinger set out to find Cost's daughter, daughter, collect DNA from her, but unfortunately, all the reports listed her only as seven-year-old daughter. He searched for an obituary of Cost, but only found a burial location on Gravefinder.com. He called the cemetery in Atlanta. An employee there found a note in Cost's file from 1982 about a woman, Diane Martin of Columbus, Ohio, who said she was his daughter and wanted to sell the plot next to his. Next, he called the Columbus Police Department's cold case unit for help, and officers there found out Martin had moved to Alabama. Denlinger eventually found her phone number and coordinated with Alabama police to take a DNA sample from her. Those were sent to him, and he provided them to the state crime lab in Ankeny. Martin's sample is being used for a comparison to the profile developed from the blood evidence found on the floor at Family Finance Center in 1959. Denlinger said he didn't know if the testing would show anything. At this point, he is trying to get answers for Martin. He's fairly sure he has identified the killer, but is doubtful it will lead to an arrest. All the officers from the case are dead, and there's no living witnesses to testify at a trial and the suspect, if still alive, may never confess. This case is much different from an 18-year-old Michelle Martinko, who was killed in 1979 and went unsolved for 39 years, until 2018. Denlinger had DNA evidence of the killer, Jerry Burns, and the witnesses needed for the trial were still alive. Martin said she needs closure in whatever form that happens. If she finds out the killer is dead, it might give her that. I still have hope, Martin said. I hope Matt Denlinger will find something that will blow it wide open. And cities scramble to fill budget gaps double whammy of low rollback and new tax limits challenge cities by Marissa Payne of the Gazette. The approximately $5,000 a year the city of Swisher devotes to replacing old Christmas decorations is among the expenses axed from the city's upcoming budget. It wasn't the only spending choice Swisher leaders are making, and the city is not alone. Many Iowa cities and counties are struggling to find efficiencies to comply with a state law signed last May intended to give taxpayers some relief from increasing property assessments that are driving their tax bills up. The bill passed in the Iowa Legislature with bipartisan support after property assessments, what the property you own is worth, increased by an average of 22% statewide in 2023, dramatically increasing tax bills for some. The law limits the amount the local governments can capture by taxing a growing tax base. While the law was meant to prevent cities and counties from seeing a tax windfall from rising assessments those with growing populations and new housing and industries are left figuring out how to extend public services to more people without being allowed to fully tap into that same growth as a double whammy to local governments the state set residential rollback rate the percent of your home's value that can be taxed is the lowest it has been in 45 years While that's good news for homeowners paying taxes, it's bad news for local governments because now more than half a home's value can't be taxed. Simply put, the property taxes in Iowa are determined by a three-legged stool, the tax rate set by local governments, the assessed valuation of property determined by the assessor's office, and the state rollback figure, which changes every year, that determines how much value can be taxed. Under the new law, cities won't be able to capture significant growth in their property valuation. The law does this by addressing the largest single tax rate that cities set, the one that supports the general fund. If valuation growth meets certain triggers, a city will have to scale back what can be captured by that general fund levy, which will be capped for all cities in fiscal 2029 at $8.10 per $1,000 of taxable value. Turning to the week in Iowa, a recap of news from across the state under the heading in the news gender identity protections remain. Iowa Republican lawmakers spiked a bill that would have removed gender identity from the state's civil rights act, taking away discrimination protections from transgender people. Republicans on a subcommittee said the bill was dead after it was voted down three to zero. Hundreds of demonstrators packed the Iowa Capitol hallway Wednesday chanting and urging lawmakers to vote against the bill. Transgender Iowans said the bill was insulting and an attack on their rights. Representative Jeff Shipley, a Republican who introduced the bill, said it was intended to clear up what he saw as a poor definition of gender in Iowa code. Income tax cuts floated. Iowa GOP lawmakers filed legislation this past week that would put Iowa on a path to eliminate the individual income tax over several years. The Tax Policy Committee chairs in both chambers suggested the bill was the beginning and may not be passed this year. Republicans said in the near term they will focus on increasing and speeding up the existing flat tax cut. Man charged with hate crime for Satanic Temple vandalism. A former congressional candidate from Mississippi who admitted to destroying a statue as part of a display at the Iowa Capitol by the Satanic Temple of Iowa has been charged with a hate crime. Michael Cassidy, 36, from Lauderdale, Mississippi, faces a third degree mischief charge for destroying the statue, which the group estimated to cost $3,000. Governor's AEA bill falters. A bill proposed by Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds to overhaul the state's area education agencies that provide special education to students across the state hit its first roadblock to becoming law when House Republican lawmakers declined to advance it out of a subcommittee Wednesday. They said they wanted further conversations before taking action. Senate Republicans, meanwhile, moved the bill on to the Education Committee, but they said it will see more changes moving forward. Parents of children with disabilities said during the meetings that they were concerned the proposal would weaken special education opportunities in the state. Reynolds goes to Texas border. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds is visiting the U.S. border at Eagle Pass, Texas today with Texas Governor Greg Abbott, along with a slew of other GOP governors. The visit comes as Abbott remains in a standoff with President Joe Biden over border and immigration enforcement. Under the heading, they said... We need to just step back and start to ask some of those questions with the overall objective of making sure that we're doing everything we can to get these kids with disabilities the education that they deserve and hopefully see better outcomes. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds on Bill to Overhaul Area Education Agencies. And, there is no flexibility in this bill. It takes local control away from our schools and our districts 133 times. If you're unhappy with the administrative costs, then deal with the administrative costs. Don't throw the whole baby out with the bathwater. Senator Molly Donahue, Democrat Cedar Rapids, on Reynolds' AEA bill. Under the heading Odds and Ends, Iowa Football reports. Iowa football will self-report an NCAA violation after a Hawkeye staffer texted former Alabama offensive tackle Caden Proctor during the 2023 season. Proctor transferred from Alabama to Iowa this year after Alabama head coach Nick Saban announced his retirement. Gender-balanced boards. A bill in the Iowa legislature would remove the requirement that Iowa boards and commissions have an equal number of men and women. Supporters of the bill say the requirement is no longer necessary, while opponents say the bill would take women out of positions of power. Under the heading Water Cooler, Death Penalty. Iowa Republican lawmakers advanced a bill Monday to reinstate the death penalty in Iowa for someone who kills a police officer. The crime would need to meet a number of criteria before a person is eligible to be sentenced to death. And Immigration Bills. Republican lawmakers are considering bills that would revoke in-state tuition from undocumented immigrants and make them ineligible for public assistance. One bill would also introduce the crime of smuggling of persons, making it illegal to transport or harbor undocumented immigrants and conceal them from the police. Turning to the Insight page, Alfea Cole writes in her To a Candid World column, Other Side of the AEA Debate. After passionate testimony was given last Wednesday before a subcommittee of the House Education Committee regarding House Study Bill 542, the measure proposed by Governor Kim Reynolds to revamp Iowa's area education agencies, House Education Committee Chair Representative Skyler Wheeler, Republican Hull, quietly announced on his personal Facebook page Thursday morning that the bill would not move forward in the House. So out of nowhere, the governor's signature proposal is toast, for now at least. Under the Governor's revised proposal, Iowa school districts would no longer have been required to partner with AEAs and automatically pass their state and federal special education funding onto them to receive special education services. Certain non-special education-related products and services would have needed a school district's request in order to be provided by an AEA, and others would have required approval from the State Department of Education, newly tasked with oversight in lieu of AEA governing boards. Faced with a loss of revenue if school districts decide that their dollars are more efficiently spent elsewhere, AEAs push back, joined by scores of Iowa parents and educators who desire to leave the system unchanged. Clearly, their passionate testimony was heard. But like it or not, there is another side to this debate, a comparatively quiet one that knows Iowa needs to improve in our delivery of special education services if we are to no longer lag behind other states. A report commissioned by the state last year and compiled by GuideHouse, Inc. says improvements can be achieved in part by restructuring Iowa's AEAs to remove the focus on instructional support and media services and return the focus back to the agency's intended purpose, special education services. It isn't necessarily surprising that the annual Iowa Statewide Assessment of Student Progress shows that Iowa students with disabilities have a significantly lower proficiency rate compared with the proficiency rate of all students. The numbers themselves, however, are a a bit sobering. Out of all Iowa students, 70% were proficient in math in 2023. In English language arts, 72% were proficient. But out of disabled students, only 29% were proficient in math. Only one out of every four Iowa students with disabilities were proficient in language arts. Of course, there are caveats to those figures. Disabilities range in severity and quantity. It isn't realistic to expect that every student with a disability has a chance to achieve proficiency in either subject but many students with disabilities can, especially those able to spend all or most of their time in regular classroom with special adaptations. Factoring in the large array of testing accommodations available to students with disabilities who take the ISASP, including reading, read aloud support, native language translation, printed multiplication tables, and separate testing environments, the gap in proficiency rates does seem bigger than it should be. A gap also exists between Iowa students and those in other states. When reviewing scores from the National Assessment of Educational Progress, which also allows for testing accommodations for students with disabilities, the Guidehouse report showed Iowa students with disabilities in 4th and 8th grades have scored below the national average for two decades, over which time both Republicans and Democrats have had full executive and legislative control during different periods. The last, mis- the last assessment in 2022 showed a rebound to just below the national average, but Iowa still performed significantly below what the report calls indicator states, or six states with characteristics in the delivery of education services similar to Iowa's. It's not flattering news, and however unpopular the governor's proposed plan was with those who desire to keep the current AEA structure in place, our current standing in special education is enough to tell us that change is needed. It's worth examining a few things in the current AEA setup that aren't as ideal as we once might have thought. The current AEA governing structure is hardly ideal. If the appeal is to keep the locally elected boards, as the statewide AEA Association puts it, we must consider what locally elected means. Governing Iowa's AEAs from the top is the board of the Iowa Association of Area Education Agencies, a distinct legal entity – The state State association's board members are regional AEA board members, each elected by the respective agencies. Each of Iowa's nine AEAs, divided into regions, has its own board of directors. Each region is further divided into director districts, its board consisting of one representative from each director district chosen by school boards in that director district. Nope, locally elected AEA boards are no more elected by voters than appointees of the Iowa Department of Education. The only say voters actually have in who runs these taxpayer-funded institutions with significant decision-making authority is in voting for their school boards every two years. The school boards then elect the AEA boards, who then elect from their own membership the statewide governing board. It reminds me of a line from a song a couple of years ago. It's kind of funny how you vote for someone to vote for someone to vote for someone. School boards don't necessarily get equal say in who represents their district on an AEA board either. Like many other political jurisdictions, AEA director districts are divided by population. In rural areas, one director district can include many school districts, while densely populated director districts represent just one school district. In the Heartland AEA region, covering counties including Polk, Dallas, and Story, Director District 3 represents 17 different school districts. Des Moines Public Schools, on the other hand, makes up the entirety of both Director District 7 and 8, and a portion of Director District 6. DMPS gets to choose two of the Heartland AEA's nine board members by itself, and weigh in on a third. It's that way all over the state. The Council Bluffs Community School District fills all of Director District 8 and 9 of the Green Hills AEA, plus parts of the Director Districts 5 and 7. In the Keystone AEA, three members, one-third of the whole board, are chosen solely by the Dubuque Community School District. Dubuque schools also make up almost 39% of a fourth Keystone AEA Director District. With such lopsided representation, it becomes understandable that some school leaders don't feel that the portion of their state and federal funding that they are required to pass on to the AEAs is coming back to them in the form of the services they feel are necessary or appropriate for their districts. They include Superintendent Corey Seymour of the Clear Creek Amana School District, part of the Grant Wood AEA, serving districts including Cedar Rapids, Lin-Mar, and Iowa City. Each district is different, Seymour told legislators at a hearing Wednesday at the state capitol. For that reason, schools should be able to control flow-through dollars. Okoboji Community School Superintendent Todd Abrahamson went further, telling legislators we've already started to look at what we would do with the dollars so we could meet the needs every day in our district because those needs are not being met currently. Worse, perhaps, even some AEA employees are said to be in support of reforming their organizations. Earlier in January, Senator Ken Rosenboom of Oskaloosa, chair of the Senate Education Committee, shared parts of a letter he received in November, along with Reynolds, the Department of Education, and one of Iowa's nine AEAs, presumably the one to which the concerned staff were referring in their letter. Quote, we believe we would be better off consolidating our resources with another AEA, read the excerpt of the letter, from which names and locations were redacted. Our special needs population is growing and our people resources to deliver valuable services to students with special needs are shrinking. Yet our administrative resources continue to grow. Do these comments from district leaders and AEA staff mean concerns from the opposition should have been ignored if Reynolds and legislators were to find a way to push the bill forward? No, they indicate that there are two very different and very real sides to the debate. Changes to Iowa's special education system have been sought for years. Until only days ago, I thought that this was the year some of those changes would be realized. They still could, albeit in a different manner. As my editor says, nothing is ever totally dead until they adjourn for the year. Even if they don't happen this year, our future AEA change is dead forever. Don't count the big Kim energy out. If we've learned one thing from last year's passage of school choice, arguably her biggest policy win ever, it's that Kim Reynolds isn't afraid to abandon a sprint to take up a marathon. And Todd Dorman writes in his 24-hour Dorman column, After a brief intermission, Iowa's culture war resumes. Sometimes bad, convoluted, and spiteful legislation does die under the Golden Dome of Wisdom, now redder than ever. Amazing, but true. It happened Wednesday when a House Judiciary Subcommittee declined to advance a bill that would have removed gender identity from the list of protected classes under Iowa's Civil Rights Code. Instead, its sponsor, Representative Jeff Shipley, Republican Birmingham, sought to offer legal protections only for Iowans diagnosed with gender dysphoria. Never mind that gender dysphoria is worsened by the marginalization and isolation of transgender Iowans. And the panel was told repeatedly that not all transgender people suffer from dysphoria. Shipley, who is not a mental health expert, but may have a young behavioral scientist decoder ring, thinks all transgender people are mentally ill, because being transgender, he argues, is make-believe. But two Republicans and a Democrat on the subcommittee, for varying reasons, let the bill die. The decision was cheered by LGBTQ Iowans and allies who thought, just maybe, the legislative onslaught aimed at persecuting 0.29% of Iowa's population might have run its course. But then on Thursday, Governor Kim Reynolds said, hold my fresca. The governor introduced an even more convoluted bill. It defines sex, man, and woman in a way that leaves little room for the legal existence of transgender people. It requires the birth gender of transgender Iowans to be listed on government documents, such as driver's licenses and birth certificates. Domestic violence and rape crisis centers and other government-owned, operated, or funded facilities could be required to create separate spaces for men and women, ignoring their gender identity. The bill says the term equal does not mean same or identical, and separate accommodations are not inherently unequal. So accommodations for transgender people can be separate but equal, but not necessarily identical. When will the LGBTQ water fountains be installed? Over and over again, the focus at the statehouse seems to be on relegating LGBTQ Iowans to second-class status. Courtney Reyes, executive director of the LGBTQ advocacy group One Iowa, said in a statement, We have had enough. We showed up in massive numbers to stop the attack on our trans siblings, and we will show up again if this harmful legislation moves a single step forward. But the governor insists she's protecting women. It's unfortunate that defining a woman in code has become necessary to protect spaces where women's health, safety, and privacy are being threatened, like domestic violence shelters and rape crisis centers. The bill allows the law to recognize biological differences while forbidding unfair discrimination, the governor said in a statement. Shipley and Reynolds want us to be very afraid of that 0.29%. They're the real threat. They're the real bullies deviant and mentally ill. They need to be separated from all of us normal God-fearing folk who have become exceedingly uncomfortable with their very existence. You seem to think that being trans is some kind of ideology, so I will say it plain, said Hiawatha City Council member Amy Wichtendahl, who is transgender. There is no such thing as transgenderism. There is only transgender people. We are human beings, we are American citizens, we are Iowans, and we do not deserve this abuse that we are getting from our government." During the subcommittee meeting, Shipley pointed to a 2021 incident when a male transgendered teenager swam without a shirt, scandalizing the Dutch enclave of Pella. I can understand why creepy old men are so adamant to protect their rights to expose their scrotums and of trans teenagers to expose their breasts, but I don't understand how that supersedes the rights of others to enjoy public amenities or how this is really in any child's best interest, he said. Yeah, he lost me on that whole scrotum thing, but Shipley was on a roll. And yet he was seemingly stunned by the reception he received in the hallway outside the meeting room where dozens of LGBTQ Iowans and allies had been monitoring a live stream of the subcommittee deliberations. Bless you, j Dog," some shouted. Okay, they didn't say bless. It was another word, rhymes with truck. Now I can't condone hurling obscenities in our capital's hallowed halls, but what's worse is obscene legislation that will harm Iowans, stoke hatred, and turn the state into a discriminatory pariah. Elliot Sutton, a 17-year-old non-binary student at Ankeny High School, told the subcommittee this sort of terrifying legislation will drive young people out of Iowa. It's just not a very safe place for me to live in a lot of ways, they said. I mean, they want to hold a session to discuss whether I should have rights. All this pain is being inflicted to sustain a grift. Religious conservatives once tried to make it illegal for same-sex couples to adopt kids. Then they went to war against same-sex marriages. The issue filled their coffers, raised their visibility, and charged up their political clout. But then the Iowa Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court made marriage equality the law of the land. When your movement is fueled by fear, you must find an enemy. Now it's transgender Iowans. Gender identity has been protected in Iowa since 2007, but suddenly this tiny group of Iowans is an existential threat to Western civilization. Demonizing and dehumanizing the other is a proven vote-getter. When this hate festival has run its course, who will be next? I'm sure they'll think of something. So we dodged being the first state in U.S. history to remove civil rights protections from a protected class, but now we may become the new separate but equal state. Remember Iowa's proud tradition of being ahead of the curve on civil rights? Now we're careening past the curve and into the abyss. Amazing, but true. Turning to the community letters and the editorial cartoon today, editorial cartoon from Clay Bennett, a syndicated cartoonist distributed by CounterPoint Media. It's a parody of the old lawn darts game fun for the whole family it says as children are throwing lawn darts with a warning may cause serious or fatal injury keep out of reach of children we see the lawn darts landing and they have the logos on them of social media platforms such as Facebook and TikTok first letter is from Larry Stone of El Cater will legislators ever require stream buffers why isn't it a no-brainer why plant crops where they'll regularly get flooded out Why farm where you risk dropping your $500,000 combine over a creek bank during harvest? And how easy it could be to improve Iowa's deteriorating water if all farmers would leave a vegetated buffer along the creek bank to slow the erosion of topsoil and reduce the runoff of farm chemicals. Many farmers already do that, but the Iowa legislature has a chance to mandate the conservation practice. Kudos to Democratic Representatives Beth Wessel-Kroschel, Ross Wilburn, Eleanor Levin, and Sharon Sue Steckman for sponsoring HF 2029, which would require a permanent vegetated buffer strip at least 30 feet wide in stream corridors. In the 60-plus years I've canoed and fished Iowa streams, I've witnessed the increasing pollution of the water and the loss of uncountable tons of our precious soil resources. Will this ever change while I'm still able to pick up a paddle or a fishing rod? Larry Stone of Elkater. Next, Ann Salomon of Cedar Rapids writes, GOP culture wars whittle away at rights. The Republican-led Iowa legislature has begun and is teeming with culture war proposals that would restrict local government, remove civil rights from select groups, introduce biased education in public schools, impose a narrow definition of patriotism, and rein in all sorts of government agencies to state re-governor authority. These are just a few examples of partisan efforts to reshape Iowa into the perfect, politically correct, God-fearing, and conservative family value state that is envisioned by an extremist minority. A minority that campaigned on freedom, but didn't mention that meant freedom for only a select few. You can argue that the voters chose these legislators and they are doing the will of the people. Vague promises in campaigns produce votes. We've seen that once elected, majority party legislators meet behind closed doors to discuss and decide issues, then emerge to vote their predetermined decision there is no need to listen to the opposing party or constituents' personal stories that conflict with the image or agenda held by the directorate. Most Iowans don't pay close attention to what goes on in the legislature, thinking that what happens there doesn't affect them up front. Then one day, a right or privilege you took for granted is threatened or taken away. That's the way it is with uh, autocracy. If you don't speak up while they whittle away at others' rights, there will be no one left to speak up for yours. Anne Salomon of Cedar Rapids. Next, Aaron Reineke of Marion writes, gender identity bill bad for mental health. So I heard there are some lawmakers wanting to claim a different gender identity as a form of mental illness. If that law had gone through, more LGBTQ people would end up with actual mental illnesses, and we'd have our lawmakers to thank for that. Aaron Reineke of Marion. Next, Mark Thurm of Marion writes, neglect of U.S. border allowing an invasion. I was a young crew member of patrol squadron 49 during the Cuban Missile Crisis. We found the first Russian submarine by airborne surveillance on October 24th, 1962. We were literally eyeball to eyeball with the Russians during that period. We were on the brink of nuclear war. President John F. Kennedy did a masterful job of dealing with Khrushchev. Unfortunately, the Democratic Party of JFK no longer exists. Our border is being invaded with the blessing of Joe Biden's administration. We need our border is secured right now. Illegal immigrants are being treated better than our own citizens. They shouldn't be processed ahead of people coming here legally. The FBI is finally waking up and warning us about the security threat. This administration should be tried for treason for the harm caused to our country. Everyone needs to get on board with stopping this insanity. Mark Thurm of Marion. Next, Ed Fisher of Iowa City writes, Make legislators sing the national anthem. My first thought upon reading Republican lawmakers, students should sing U.S. anthem, front page, the Gazette, January 25th, was that the proposed bill be amended to require that legislators sing at least one verse of the anthem at the start of each day of the legislature in session. That would set a fine example for the students. Ed Fisher of Iowa City. Next, Jim Walters of Iowa City writes, Institute filled with Reynolds flatterers. Really an institute for common sense? A think tank to promote common sense? Apparently some think we poor benighted Iowa citizens and taxpayers need proper help in evaluating the performance of state government. January 19th, Common Sense Institute think tank launches Iowa chapter. A quick scan of the board of this group reveals it's larded up with friends and sycophants of our current governor, its role apparently to reassure us of the great job she's doing. William F. Buckley Jr. was famously quoted as saying he'd rather entrust the government of the United States to the first 400 people listed in the Boston telephone directory than to the faculty of Harvard University. Wouldn't the people of Iowa be better served by the common sense of the first 400 names in the Cedar Rapids telephone directory? Then to a propaganda arm set up to serve Governor Reynolds, Orwell had Big Brother telling people how to think. Do we need a big sister? Jim Walters of Iowa City. And the final letter from Nancy Reinke of Ainsworth, if anthem to be sung daily, add third verse. As a patriotic American, I'm delighted that Iowa Republican lawmakers have mandated the daily singing of at least one verse of slave owner Francis Scott Key's The Star-Spangled Banner. I propose... A daily singing of the third verse of our national anthem, an objective history lesson aimed at understanding the meaning of Key's words, the hiring and slave, would serve students well. Not only in understanding U.S. history, but in understanding how we can deny an obvious truth, slavery, if it contradicts our self-regard. Land of the Free. Nancy Reinke from Ainsworth. And some quotes of the week. First, Hawkeye Caitlin Clark reflecting on moving into second place on the all-time NCAA women's basketball scoring list while also becoming the Big Ten's all-time top scorer. Caitlin says, I think the coolest thing is the names I get to be around. Those are the people that I grew up watching, especially Kelsey Plum, Brittany Greiner, Kelsey Mitchell. Those are really great players that are still playing our game at the highest level. Next, Brad Buck, superintendent in the Waukee Community School District and former Iowa Department Education Director, speaking against legislation that would drastically change the funding and structure of Iowa area education agencies. Buck says, there's no way this math works like it's being described. I'm just telling you that. It's far more likely that larger districts will come out in better shape and this bill will impact smaller and especially rural districts. Next, Hiawatha City Councilmember Amy Wichtendahl, opposing a bill that would remove gender identity as a protected class under the Iowa Civil Rights Code. Councilmember Wichtendahl says, There is no such thing as transgenderism. There is only transgender people. We're human beings. We are American citizens. We are Iowans. And we do not deserve this abuse that we are getting from our government. And former Brandon Mayor Ron Byer discussing Iowa's biggest frying pan on display in town. Mayor Boyer says, As far as I know, it's the second largest frying pan in the United States. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, February 4th, 2024 on the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. I am your reader, Sharon Faljudo, and we turned to today's obituaries. Gary Nathaniel Haster of Cedar Rapids. On December 2nd, Gary Nathaniel Haster reached his lifelong goal. He entered into heaven and met his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and his younger brother, Johnny. Visitation will be from 9 to 11 a.m. Saturday, April 27th, at Brosh Chapel in the Ava Center in Cedar Rapids, 2121 Bowling Street, Southwest. A celebration of life service will begin at 11 a.m. Saturday, with military honors to follow. Gary served in the United States Navy on the USS Buchanan, a guided missile destroyer, from 1960 to 1964. He returned to Collins Radio and eventually started his career at Job Service of Iowa. Helping people was Gary's calling. He was not a missionary in a foreign country, but he was willing to help anyone anytime, anywhere, physically and spiritually. At Job Service, he was a veterans representative working mostly with Vietnam-era veterans like himself. He would find them jobs first, then would help with whatever needs they had. It was not unusual that he'd be stopped in the middle of a store or parking lot by former clients who wanted to say hello and thank him. Gary was also an entrepreneur. He had several multi-level businesses, and his photography business led him to set up a darkroom in every house we lived in. He was never without his camera or his Bible. Dwight David Bacon, age 69, of Decorah, passed away January 25th at his home, surrounded by his family. Throughout the years, Dwight worked in farm supply management at Postville Farmers Co-op and Walk-On Feed Ranch for 40-plus years, and Malcolm Enterprises as a sanitation engineer in Decorah. He was a member of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Postville, the AMVETS in Monona, and the American Legion in Postville. A visitation will be held from 3 to 7 p.m. Friday, February 16th at St. Paul Lutheran Church Fellowship Hall in Postville. There will also be a one-hour visitation before services at the church on Saturday. Funeral service will be 10.30 a.m. Saturday, February 17th at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Postville with Rev. Lynn as officiant. Interment will be held at a later date in the Postville Cemetery. Marjorie Ann Petrelska, born Marjorie Ann Rink, 92 years old, passed away peacefully on January 29th in her home on the Hill. A lover of music, Marge began playing violin during her high school years at Mount Mercy Academy and continued playing with the University of Iowa Symphony. Committed to volunteerism, Marge could always be called upon to bake and help serve funeral luncheons at All Saints Catholic Church, was an active member and secretary of ZCBJ Lodge 262, and for years a bluebird and campfire girl leader. A lifelong learner, Marge was active in Questers, a national organization of those interested in antiques and collectibles. A devoted pharmacist, she maintained her pharmacy license well into her eighties and donated her professional skills, becoming involved for years with a community health free clinic to provide pharmaceuticals and advice to those in need. A visitation will be held from four to seven PM Tuesday, February sixth at Papage Cuba Funeral Home East. 1228 2nd Street, Southeast Cedar Rapids, and after 9 a.m. on Wednesday, February 7th, at All Saints Catholic Church with a funeral mass at 10 a.m. Burial will be at St. John's Cemetery following the mass. Joanne Ruth Hollett of Animosa. In remembrance of Joanne Ruth, January 8, 1936, to January 13, 2024, Joanne, 88, of Animosa, passed away peacefully at the Animosa Care Center with her loving sons by her side. She attained her nursing degree from Allen Hospital Nursing School in 1958 and became a certified registered nurse. Joanne began her nursing career in the emergency room at the University of Iowa Hospital. She worked 18 years in the emergency room, then worked in a minor surgery outpatient clinic where she assisted doctors and was also in charge of maintaining four surgical rooms. She was a nurse for 42 years. After retiring in 1995, Joanne had logged more hours than any nurse in the history of the University of Iowa Hospital. A Celebration of Life Services will be held at 11 a.m. Saturday, April 13th at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Anamosa. Reverend Rodney Bloom will officiate. Burial taking place on a later date will be in Riverside Cemetery. Joanne's family will greet friends from 9.30 a.m. to the time of service at the church. They also invite you to share fellowship and lunch with them following the service in the church hall. Warren Edward Bardwell, Jr., known as Bill, USAF retired, 87, of Cedar Rapids, passed away at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics on January 12th. A memorial service will be held February 10th at 11 a.m. at the Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories. Burial with military honors will take place at Arlington National Cemetery at a later date. Bill enlisted in the U.S. Air Force on July 5th, 1955. He served 14 years in an enlisted capacity, working primarily as an airborne electronic technician with the United States Air Force Security Service. While deployed to Da Nang AFB, Vietnam, he flew 104 combat missions over North Vietnam. Upon retirement from the Air Force, Bill joined the GPS program at Rockwell International as a logistics program manager. Bill retired from Rockwell in 1994. Bill was always patient, understanding, and full of sage advice. He was a member of the Knoll Ridge Christian Church and a member of Kokusai 15 Grand Lodge of Japan. He was an avid cubby and enjoyed watching soccer. He had many other interests, including gardening, playing bridge, and weekly trips to the library. (laughs) Michael P. Evans, age 84, of Cedar Rapids, a.k.a. Mike, Uncle Mike, Spike, or Grand Puppy, by those who knew and loved him, passed away on January 30th at Bickford of Marion. A private family service for Mike will be held at Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories. Mike started his business career at the Family Business, the Turner Microphone Company here in Cedar Rapids in 1968. Mike would later go on to help found other family businesses, Hardy Gardens and Triple ES Limited, and would work in bank market consulting and concluded his career as a senior regional manager for ISI of Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, a firm that specializes in the design of McDonald's franchises throughout the Midwest. Many of Mike's unique designs won awards awards for his franchisee customers and deep appreciation from the McDonald's Corporation. Mike was also known as Chainsaw Mike for his love of cutting down large trees around his property as well as for friends. He could drop a tree wherever and whenever a friend called, which amazed and scared those involved. Mike also loved Pyrotechnics, was a licensed pyro, and scared the heck out of many neighbors and friends with his displays on the 4th of July, at Thanksgiving and Christmas, or whenever the spirit moved him. Craig Thomas Wright, age 72, of Lakewood, Colorado, passed away peacefully on January 20th, surrounded by his daughters. He served as a member of the St. Luke's Hospital cardiac surgical team until his retirement. Craig will be remembered for his playful nature, love of his daughters, pride in his work, and complete adoration of his grandchildren. There will be a private service at a later date. And Doris Batcher, age 89, of Lisbon, passed away January 30th at the Oldorf Hospice House in Hiawatha. Memorial service and visitation are pending. Doris enjoyed sewing, playing the piano, reading, camping, baking, watching Lawrence Wilk, traveling to national parks with her husband Bill, hosting family dinners, helping Bill with home improvements, and spending time with grandchildren. She volunteered for Cub Scouts, campfire, a teacher's assistant as a Sunday school teacher for her church, United Methodist Church of Mount Vernon. Turning to the sports page in Boys Wrestling, Al Burnett powers into duels final ends drought. By KJ Pilcher of the Gazette in Coralville. Albernette coach Clayton Rush knew exactly how long it had been since the boys' wrestling program competed for a state duels title. Eight years, Rush said, not that I'm counting. He certainly emitted a vibe that it's been way too long for his liking. The good thing is the drought ended. Top-ranked Alburnett won 10 matches, including eight in a row and thumped number 5 Nashua Plainfield, 47-21, and the Class 1A semifinals of the state duels tournament Saturday at Extreme Arena. The Pirates wrestled for a championship for the first time since 2016, late last night. Putting Albernette back on the map, Albernette, 120-pounder, rowdy neighbor said, being the top dog is where we want to be. I think we're going in the right direction. This is a movement that started when the current wrestlers were in elementary and middle school. Coincidentally, that was close to the time the Pirates won their last duels title. It's one of the coolest things, Albernette, 150-pounder, Reese Klosterman said. We all grew up wrestling together. It's what we dreamed of as a kid. The victory over the Huskies soothed the sting of last year's semifinal loss to Wilton. Klosterman said Rush never mentioned that, but at least one wrestler held on to that memory. I definitely had it in the back of my mind. Klosterman said, I knew we had to get it back. The program has been propelled by a strong junior class. They have been at the heart of the resurgence as a 1A contender. They demonstrated their grit and coachable attitude in the semifinals. They put a lot of extra time into me, Rush said. I think it's because I put a lot of extra time into them on and off the mat. They're an ornery group, but it started in eighth grade. I tried to hone them in and help direct it along the way. They know I'm invested in them, and they give it right back. Albarnet opened with a 56-18 win over number eight Wapsie Valley, but found itself in an early 10-0 hole after two matches with Nashua Plainfield. Emmett Flushman 285 and 106-poundy Atley Dewitt posted back-to-back pins to put the Pirates up by two. The Huskies received a technical fall from Nick Braze at 113, giving them a 15-12 lead. It was the last time the Pirates trailed. Neighbor, a returning state finalist and ranked second, took the mat against returning state champion and top-ranked Jaden Rinkin at 120 pounds. Neighbor edged Rinkin for a two-in-one decision. It was a big confidence booster, Neighbor said. Keep building momentum with my team. Rush said it was a marquee match. It also ended up being a fulcrum. The result teetered on, sparking the rest of the Pirates. That's a high-level match, Rush said. Anytime you win matches like that, it's a confidence and energy booster. Tate and Kofa followed with a major at 126. Cooper Klosterman, 132, and Preston Klosterman, 138, added pins. Reese Klosterman won by major, and Hunter Sowers' pin ended the hot streak. Reese Klosterman won his 100th career match, joining teammates neighbor Dawson, Becker, and Preston Klosterman. It's pretty cool, especially since it was the semifinals, Reese Klosterman said. I'm just glad I hit it because all my buddies also hit it this year. While Auburnette and its finals opponent, Don Bosco, aren't new to the state duels, six-seeded Jessup was. The Jayhawks made their debut at the team championship event, placing fifth. We've had a heck of a year, Jessup coach Matt Gross says. This has been building for the last four or five years. Jessup hosted and beat state dual stalwart Lisbon to qualify. They dropped the quarterfinal duel to Don Bosco, but notch wins over Hinton and Wapsie Valley by identical 45-27 scores. The Jayhawks finished 23-2, setting a season record for dual wins. We feel this is going to be the new standard for us, Gross said. And in college athletics, storm warning, court, and field storming creates scary moments, something Iowa is trying to deal with at home and away by John Stepp of the Gazette. The Big Ten faced a reminder of the dangers of court storming last month, and it came in the form of an Ohio State fan running and colliding with the biggest star in women's college basketball. Iowa's Caitlin Clark was, in her words, blindsided by the fan who stormed the court while holding up her phone after Ohio State's 192 win on January 21st over the then second-ranked Hawkeyes. Court storming and in-football field storming, field storming, and the danger that comes with those traditions are nothing new in collegiate athletics. If there was a quick and easy and safe way to stop court storming and field storming, believe me when I tell you every institution in the country would have implemented those procedures, Iowa Athletics Director Beth Goetz said during Thursday's Presidential Committee on Athletics meeting. However, especially after Clark's run-in with a seemingly oblivious fan, Iowa and its Big Ten peers have taken added measures to avoid a similar situation from happening again. Northwestern was our first road game after that, and they went above and beyond to make sure they were cooperating with our team, our security group that went over with them, Get Said, after the meeting. I think everybody will continue to be attentive to that. While security for officials and the visiting team remains the responsibility of the homeschool, Get Said Iowa has made some adjustments with its own security plans at road games as well. We were always proactively and have been particularly in and around women's basketball, communicating with them on the ground before we arrived, Get Said. Now we're advancing a group a little bit earlier to make sure that they're engaged with the hotel and at the side of competition. Iowa has not experienced a major court storming or field storming at a home event since the 2021 football win over Penn State. The athletics department has a plan for whenever it does happen again though. Iowa's strategy is centered on mitigation as opposed to absolute prevention, said Marcus Wilson, Iowa's executive senior associate athletics director for event management and sport administration. Our current philosophy at Iowa is it is very difficult to stop these incidents without use of physical force, without compromising the safety of our fans, our staff, or law enforcement, Wilson said. Wilson's staff has separate plans for possible court storming at Carver Hawkeye Arena and possible field storming at Kinnick. Both have the same general approach. Iowa's contracted security and law enforcement will perform a perimeter, form a perimeter around the playing service before the end of the game that has the potential for court storming or field storming. The focus is always on the student section, Wilson said, and law enforcement can take any enforcement action against any individual who tries to run out before the game and disrupt the game itself. When the game ends, Iowa's contracted security personnel move into different positions to effectively protect the team tunnels and ensure a safe path exists for the home and visiting teams to exit the playing surface safely. Law enforcement sworn officers are responsible for escorting the officials, the home and visiting team head coaches, and the student athletes off the playing surface, Wilson said. Iowa also has medical assistance available for any fans who need immediate care after the court storming or field storming. Wilson said his staff sees court storming situations at other schools and often can find ways to improve upon our plan. We collaborate regularly with our peers across the conference, Wilson said. Iowa's plan is one that will continually reassess, reevaluate, update, and improve, but at the end of the day, there is only so much event security can do. I don't think anybody has a plan that's going to eliminate all risk, Wilson said. The Clark collision was perhaps an example of that. Goetz believes Ohio State had a good plan in place in the case of a court storming, although that plan obviously did not prevent the unfortunate outcome. At the end of the day, I believe all our peers in the Big Ten are doing everything they can to put together a plan, Goetz said. When there's a gap in execution, sometimes you have incidents happen. And obviously, this one was a scary one and very unfortunate. And finally today, the time machine. A look back at the people, places, and events in eastern Iowa. Iowa's largest frying pan. Brandon's giant skillet dates to 2004, but town's history goes way back, by Diane fannin Langton, correspondent. What if you needed a frying pan that could handle a really big breakfast? There's one in Brandon that can hold 88 times as much as a 10-inch frying pan. That's 44 dozen eggs, 176 pounds of a half-pound pork chops, or 88 pounds of bacon, or 220 pounds of 8-ounce hamburgers. The 1,020-pound iron skillet has never cooked any of that, though. Instead, it stands near the Brandon Community Center that the Buchanan County City's once semi-annual and now annual Cowboy Breakfast helped to build. The breakfast inspired construction of the skillet. When the pan was completed and put in place in May 2004, near the future site of the community center, it was thought to be the biggest frying pan in the world. But after doing some research, then-Mayor Ron Boyer said he found one in Washington State that was larger. As far as I know, it's the second largest frying pan in the United States, he said. It is for sure the largest frying pan in Iowa. The huge skillet is a testament to the small town ingenuity and fortitude that has been part of Brandon since it was platted in 1854 and incorporated as a town in 1906. Even though the small town had only about 300 people in the early 1900s, it was still able to attract an interurban rail line. The arrival of the Cedar Valley line in 1913 was a big deal. After all, town promoters had tried five times, starting with an effort to lure the Burlington, Cedar Rapids, and Northern Railway, later the Rock Island. That line was rerouted south of the Cedar River. A brief effort to bring in a narrow gauge fizzled. It was followed by an 1885 effort to bring a Northwestern Railroad through town. Jefferson Township voters said no. A 1907 plan for an interurban from Cedar Rapids through Urbana, Brandon, Shady Grove, and Jubilee to Waterloo raised hopes again, only to have the plan abandoned. But shortly after that, there was hope for a line from Canada through the Mississippi Valley all the way to Galveston, Texas. That one included Brandon in its stops across the state. It was revealed as a hoax. When promoter L.S. Cass, who had completed an interurban railroad from Waterloo to Laporte City, offered to build an electric railroad through Urbana and Braden if citizens of the two towns could raise a total of $150,000, they did so in a record-breaking three weeks. Cass promised to build their electric railway within a year. In, October, in August 1913, Brandon residents saw a steam construction train on the Waterloo Cedar Falls and northern tracks in their town, as well as a train pulling a carload of cattle to Chicago. At the end of August the first interurban trolley car rolled into Brandon. When Brandon approached its centennial in 1954, Main Street was resurfaced and new curbs and gutters were installed in time for the town's two-day celebration, July 9th and 10th. The next year, the WCF&N Interurban Railroads began to disappear. With the loss of its school in the 1960s, Brandon looked for another claim to fame. The Cowboy Breakfast inaugurated in June 2000 was a step in that direction. Slated to be held twice a year, once in spring and once in fall, the breakfast was cooked outdoors in cast-iron skillets. The menu included scrambled eggs, pancakes, fried potatoes, sausage, biscuits, sausage gravy, bacon, and cowboy coffee. Funds raised from the breakfast were applied to a new community center. The breakfast-inspired frying pan was created in 2004. Denton Castings Company, an iron shop set, in the, set up in the community's old school building, made miniature skillets to sell in Brandon's convenience store. The new community center was completed in 2007 and dedicated August 3rd and 4th. After that September's Cowboy Breakfast, the event switched to an annual event that continues to this day. This year's event is scheduled for September 15th. And that brings me to the end of reading the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, February 4th, 2024. I have been your reader, Sharon Falduno, reading to you from my kitchen table in Coralville. Might go crazy today and defrost my deep freeze. Remember that you can access a recording of this or any other Iris recording at any time on our website, iowaradioreading.org. We do welcome your comments. Thank you for listening.